there are some people you trust right away and places where you feel more at ease than anywhere else. That's what UNIT meant for me. Safety, security, a place where I felt I belonged. But all that was to change. I was running for my life. It was hard going. Mud was sticking to my boots and the thick crops were slowing me down. Eventually I cleared the crops and ran across a short distance of rough ground, only to find myself standing at the top of a very high cliff. I turned to see my colleagues, members of Free Platoon, appearing from the crops. One by one, they trained their rifles on me. I backed away from them as far as I could, my heels slipping on wet soil at the cliff edge. Lower your weapons! The brigadier jumped from the Land Rover and walked towards me. The brig, the dependable, trustworthy brigadier. My friend. He was silhouetted by the rover's headlights, so I couldn't see his face. I couldn't read his expression, but I could see him raise his revolver and point it at me. The shots rang out and I stumbled back, teetering on the edge. I could hear waves pounding on the rocks below. I reached out to the brigadier, to the man I trusted more than any other, and I watched him deliver the coup de grace. Then I rented a flat in Clapham. It was stark, to say the least. One bedroom, not many personal belongings, few records, record player, some books. Not much to show for my life. Not really a home. But then, home had never held much meaning for me. All my life I'd been moved from one institution to another. Prep school to public school, public school to the army. Always part of the crowd, but never really fitting in, like a piece of a jigsaw that keeps getting put in the wrong box. It wasn't until I was seconded to unit that I felt I belonged. Perhaps it was the unusual nature of the job, perhaps the discovery that there was more to the universe, but I think more than anything, it was the people. I felt supported, and for the first time liked. I'd settled in. Life was comfortable. I should have known it couldn't last. The phone call came at 3 a.m. Fifteen minutes later, I was climbing into a Land Rover and on my way to RAF Northolt. Morning! Morning, sir. My driver handed me a briefing pack. More freaky lizards hell-bent on wiping out mankind? I had barely woken up, and through the fog of sleep, I hadn't recognized the person sitting behind the wheel. I looked again. Then I remembered. Corporal Jean Mercer. She'd been my driver during the Silurian cleanup. I smiled. Morning, Corporal. Good to see you again. Thank you, sir. Let's get a move on, shall we? <clears throat> Let's see if we can save the world by lunchtime. 
The briefing pack was just that, brief. Our destination was Sark, one of the Channel Islands. Over the same number of nights, five strange circular shapes had appeared in fields of wheat. The fields belonged to a remote farm on a small peninsula to the southwest of the island. The blue bottles had passed it off as vandals, but the activity had been flagged up during the routine interception of regional police communications by GCHQ, and the incident had been passed on to UNIT. The Hercules was flying three platoon to Guernsey. A Royal Navy landing craft was waiting there to take us onto Sark. Shapes? What sort of shapes? Apparently they look like rings. The doctor has referred to them as pictograms. He suspects each could be the letter of an alien language. That sounds like the doctor. He's never been wrong before. I closed the file I'd been reading, then closed my eyes. If the doctor suspected each pictogram to be the letter of an alien language, then what on earth were the symbols trying to spell? Sark is a small island with very little infrastructure. Whether UNIT had commandeered the vehicles or the local population had kindly lent them, I didn't know. It was these small details that really crossed my mind. The fact was, we had a handful of Land Rovers at our disposal, and it was these that ferried us to the site of our investigation. The farm belonged to the Olivers. It had been in their family for five generations. Find a suitable location for the incident room, would you, Sergeant? Sir. Benton sprang into action with calm efficiency. Pollard, get the gear out of the trucks. Uh, Mr. Oliver, is it? Sergeant Benton, could I trouble you for a moment, sir? As ever, three platoon ran like a well-oiled machine. My first order of business was to dispatch the science team to investigate one of the pictograms. The second was to rustle up a cup of tea. Despite the obvious disruption we must be causing, the Olivers were extremely hospitable. Thank you, Mrs. Oliver. You're welcome, Captain. But by the sound of things, there wasn't going to be any time for a tea party. The Western Scout threw a squall of dirt into the air as it came to rest an enormous dragonfly. Two familiar faces emerged from the aircraft, and I don't mind telling you I was glad to see them both. Well, Captain, have you managed to harvest any information? Dr. Mason eyebrows, he said it, and I saw the flicker of a smile at the corner of the brigadier's mouth. We've only just arrived, but we should have some readings for you shortly. If you'll follow me, I escorted them to the incident room we'd set up in one of the Oliver's outbuildings. Once inside, I outlined our current position, showed them a wall map of the surrounding area, pointed out our observation post on a low hill overlooking the site, and talked them through the information we collated so far, including a photographic schedule of the five pictograms. The doctor pondered the photographs. The pictograms are certainly letters of an alien language. I think Ethereum, a transdimensional race, and thankfully, non-hostile. The brigadier asked the question we were all thinking. If these symbols are letters, Doctor, then what do they spell? The doctor explained that he couldn't tell us what the word was because it wasn't complete. But 
Uh, judging by the pattern of events, gentlemen, we can expect another pictogram to appear this very night. The observation post wasn't on particularly high ground, but it gave us the best possible view of the surrounding area, including most of the existing pictograms. Sergeant Benton was on watch with a couple of his men. I joined them to take a look at the alien letters for myself. The view was magnificent. The field stretched about us like an unmade bed. Beyond that, a small area of scrubland, then cliffs all round. I could hear the waves beating against the rocks below, but from up here they couldn't be seen. The moon spread an eerie light across the landscape, reflecting off the sea in the distance and spilling across the island. Enough light to see by at night. I peered through my binoculars. <laughs> How many hours had we spent on watch doing just this? Staring into the night, waiting. I lowered the binoculars. Any of you chaps bring a flask? Benton started rifling through his gear, but then I heard it. Faintly at first, but building. Shh. Do you hear that? Benton spotted it. There, sir, look. An ethereal glimmer had appeared several meters above one of the unaffected fields. I grabbed the radio. Hello, trap one. This is Greyhound two, over. Trap one, this is Greyhound two, over. What? Did you hear that, Sergeant? Benton didn't respond. He had his rifle pulled tightly into his shoulder, keeping it trained on the strange light that glowed several hundred feet away. The light suddenly intensified, and pain shot through my eyeballs, stabbing into the back of my head. And then, just as abruptly, it was gone. I blinked rapidly, trying to get my eyes to see again. Trap one, send over. Greyhound two, this is trap one, send over. As my eyesight slowly recovered, it wasn't the radio that caught my attention. The strange light had disappeared from the field, but in its place, lit by the moon, was a sixth pictogram. We didn't waste any time getting to the site. I want the field searched and a perimeter in place. Nothing gets in or out. You heard the man, Pollard? Move it, move it! The doctor approached the edge of the new symbol and gently waved a Geiger counter back and forth. Well, doctor, any the wiser. The doctor looked at him as if he was a particularly slow child. My dear Brigadier, as I've said to Champollion, shortly before deciphering the Rosetta Stone, there is a profound difference between translation and interpretation. However, what I do know is that all fixed letters spell Ikeria. Ikeria? But what does it mean, Doctor? Uh, the visual language of the Ethereum people is, is far more complex than your own. Uh, what you would call vowels are many times more abundant in Ethereum. What looks to us like a simple repetition of the letter I could, uh, depending doctor, on... Doctor, please, interrupted the Brigadier. What does the word mean? The Doctor looked him firmly in the eye. It means craft. Sir! A 
similar to Benton. Overhead! Looking up, we saw the same ethereal glow above us. Clear the area! You heard the captain! Move, move, move! The men found out, backing away from the area where the crops had been flattened, clearing a space. Slowly, gracefully, an object began to take shape in the light. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Sweeping metallic curves with breathtaking ornamentation. Like an enormous gemstone, lit from within, glowing in every color of the rainbow. Close your eyes! I checked to make sure the men were following orders, then squeezed my own tightly shut. The blast almost knocked us to the ground. I opened my eyes cautiously. The object was now fully formed. It still hung in the air above us, but now began to descend slowly and came to a stop a foot or two in the air, not quite touching down, hanging motionless in the center of the pictogram that had appeared only a few moments before. The object bathed us in a soft peachy light. I could see now it was little bigger than a Bedford truck, including whatever source of propulsion it contained. It must have been only big enough for one or two occupants. I quickly checked about me. The men were all in position, surrounding the object at a distance of approximately 100 feet. Unusually, not one of them was covering the object with his weapon. I looked as soon as I heard the noise and watched as a hatch opened and a ramp extended to the ground. We all stood, watching, waiting. Then she appeared, tall, easily seven or eight feet, and lithe. Her limbs weren't jointed like ours, but bent gracefully like blades of grass. She wore jewelry, and her face appeared to be covered in makeup, like that of a geisha. Her hair was long, as was her dress and both were of colours that changed magically. One second burning orange, the next crystal blue like a tropical sea. She was the most heavenly creature I'd ever set eyes on. And we all stood, transfixed. The doctor was the first to break the spell. Good evening. I'm the doctor. Welcome to Earth. Thank you, doctor. I am Egeria. The brigadier turned to the doctor. I thought you said it meant craft. The doctor ignored him. May I ask, Egeria, why it is you're paying Earth a visit? You may. I have come here so the people of Earth might benefit from my gift. Gift? I manipulate form to create objects of beauty. Like an artist? Artist. Yes, I like that. Am I to take it you're responsible for the damage caused to these fields? The doctor placed a hand on his arm. Gently, Brigadier. Brigadier? Hmm. I signified, as you would say, the letters of my designation in order to attract attention before arriving. I believe it is not appropriate in your culture to arrive unannounced. But damage? What a strange accusation! Are the symbols not beautiful? Why do you all wear this dreary shade of green? She took a few steps towards Benton and reached out, removing the scrim he wore around his neck as a scarf. It does not suit you at all. 
indigo would better complement your eyes. Sergeant Benton turned bright red. She was extremely beautiful. There was no denying it. And utterly beguiling. Why did you land here? Couldn't you have made contact in London? I did not want to alarm your population. A remote island seemed a sensible place to make contact. The Brigadier explained he would have to return to London to announce her arrival to his superiors. They may wish to meet with you, he said. And I would be delighted to meet with them. Please, accept this as a token of my friendship, Brigadier. She reached towards the Brigadier and held her hand outstretched, palm facing up. A glow of light appeared, suspended in the air above her hand. Gradually, a gold ring appeared in the light. A ring inlaid with precious stone. Eventually, the ring fully manifested itself and dropped softly into the palm of her hand. The stone seemed to be alive, its color shifting and changing, but almost too slowly to notice. Consider this a sample of my work. Take it with you. Show the people you call superior. The brigadier took the ring from her hand. The rest of us smiled. He couldn't help but smile. The sun was peering over the horizon and the sky was filling up with colour. From deep blue to an amber glow where it met the sea. Ikiria had returned to her ship and the brigadier had left for London. I'd placed an armed guard on the access road isolating the peninsula. The Olivers had been temporarily rehoused. We organised a perimeter around the field and a tight perimeter around Ikeria's ship. It was all going according to plan until I realised someone was missing. Sergeant Benton, have you seen the doctor? Benton replied he'd last seen him investigating the perimeter. Well, have someone locate him, would you, Sergeant? Benton ordered Lance Corporal Campbell to take his section and search for the doctor on the double. As Benton turned away from issuing orders to Campbell, my attention was caught by a glint of light from Benton's hand. What have you got there, Sergeant? Sir? You heard me, man. Your hand. What is it? Benton held up his right hand. On the fourth finger was a ring, much like the ring Ikeria had given to the brigadier. Sunlight reflected in the gold, and the precious stone glowed a rich blue. Why on earth are you wearing that? Benton looked offended. Ikiria gave it me. Well, I don't think wearing it is a good idea. Take it off. Of course, sir. Roll your way. So, she was giving out rings to the men, was she? I didn't like it. I didn't like it one little bit. I left Benton in charge of things outside, and stepped towards the ship for an audience with our new visitor. Come in, Captain. I am honoured by your presence. Her ship was small on the inside and relatively empty. Hanging from the ceiling was an upside-down pyramid that reached almost to the floor. At the tip was a glowing blue crystal, much the same colour as the light that had appeared above the field. It pulsed very, very gradually, almost hypnotically. Ma'am, I must insist that you refrain from distributing your jewellery to my men. Captain, they are given merely as a token of friendship. I appreciate that, but... Would I... you accept a gift from me, Captain? 
She reached out to me, as she had to the brigadier earlier. A glow of light appeared above the palm of her hand, and a ring materialized, dropping softly into her palm. My work must be seen. It must be appreciated. Otherwise, it serves no purpose. Take the ring, Mike. That's very kind of you, Ikiria, but I must refuse. Everything will make sense to you if you take the ring. I'm sorry, no. No more rings. But as I protested, the light from the blue crystal began to glow ever brighter until it was almost blinding. Ikiria, please! There is nothing I can do to help you, Mike, unless you accept one of my tokens. Please! I don't remember leaving Ikiria's ship or driving to the Oliver farmhouse. The next thing I knew, Mercer was shaking me. Sir? Are you okay, sir? Mercer? Where am I? What time is it? The farmhouse. It's 1100 hours, sir. I must have been out for at least four hours. I was disorientated, confused. And I had the most shocking headache. Ooh. Sir? Have you got any painkillers, Mercer? Yes, sir. She rummaged in a field bag. Has there been any sign of the doctor? Not yet, sir. Between blocking off the access road and manning two perimeters, Sergeant Benton has the men spread quite thin. I'm not sure they've had a chance to look. Oh, here you are, sir. Thank you, Corporal. I need to make a report to the Brigadier. He'll be busy, sir. We're all busy, Mercer. Uh, just get him on the damned radio. Yes, sir. Mercer left to put my request to the radio operator. I waited for a few moments, massaging my temples, trying to will a headache to go. Eventually I climbed to my feet and followed after her. As Mercer had predicted, the Brigadier was in no mood for distractions. Even over the radio I could sense his impatience. She attacked me, sir. And all because I wouldn't take one of her rings. I'm telling you, these rings are the key to what's going on here. Over. Yes. Will you please stop banging on about the damn rings? Over. Sir, are you wearing the ring she gave you? Over. Of course not, man. The very idea. I tried to protest, but he cut across me. Well, sir. Thank you, Mercer. Something's not right. He knows the drill. In a situation like this, everything could be a potential threat and should be treated with caution. He's breaking every rule in the book. Hello, Trap One. These are our five. Over. Trap One, send. Over. We found the Doctor's target counter by the cliff edge to the southwest. No sign of the Doctor. We're concerned he may have fallen over the Where did you find the Gaga counter? 
Campbell gestured towards the grassy precipice. Yes, sir. I crawled to the cliff edge and peered over. To my relief, I saw a ledge not ten feet below. If he fell, he could well have landed safely. Uh, pass me your radio, Campbell. Sir. Hello, Trap 1. This is Greyhound 5. Over. Trap 1, send. Over. No sign of the doctor, but I suspect he survived the fall. Radio all patrols and establish if anyone's seen him. Over. Okay. Out. None of this was making sense. The doctor wouldn't just disappear. The brigadier was behaving very strangely. The sunlight bounced off the sea into my eyes and it made me squint. I turned away from the cliff. It was then that I noticed Campbell was wearing gloves. Corporal, that took a while. Did you cover everybody? Yes, sir. What have you got for me? They were all wearing them, sir. Including Benton? Yes, sir. Is this really that unusual, sir? All the men wearing gloves at the same time? <laughs> yes, it's unusual. Very unusual. Particularly, Mercer, since it's August. Yes, sir. Why would they be wearing gloves if it isn't to hide what they're wearing underneath? You really think they're all wearing one of her rings, sir? Why not? Just seems a bit far-fetched, sir. And anyway, what if they are? They're only rings. Don't seem to be doing anyone any harm. No. The doctor's missing, and nobody seems to give a hoot. The brigadier's barking, and the men are dressed as if it's an ice age. Oh, maybe you're right, Mercer. I don't know. Maybe I'm going mad. I just feel there's an infection going on here, and I don't know how far it's spread. If you don't mind me saying, sir... It does sound a bit paranoid. Mercer was right. Somewhere between visiting a carrier in her ship and waking up in the farmhouse four hours later, I'd lost the ability to trust anyone. What's going on out there? It's Dakin, sir. Looks like they found something. It's in the back of a pickup. I leapt to my feet and ran for the door. Whatever they'd found, I kept my fingers crossed it wasn't the doctor. I'm sorry, sir. We just found him like this. Who, man? Who is it? Campbell, sir. Inappropriate as it was, I'll admit I felt a sense of relief. That meant the doctor could still be out there, somewhere. I yanked the tarpaulin back. Campbell's face was horribly disfigured. Not so much as if he'd been beaten. More as if he'd been stretched or distorted like a watercolour that had been left out in the rain. Campbell, dead. The very man we'd sent to locate the doctor. I looked at Campbell's twisted face. It was so misshapen, it was impossible to tell if he wore an expression of agony or, or bliss. No human being had killed Campbell. That much was clear. Who found him? We found him by the cliffs to the south of here. I didn't ask where, Dakin. I asked... But that's not all, sir. Another symbols appeared in one of the fields. I saw it the moment we pulled up. It looked as if it had been carved into the crops. Any other time I'd have considered it a thing of beauty, a work of art. But what I saw sent a shiver down my spine. It was a perfect portrait of Campbell's face. 
depicted in a field of wheat, the same way the alien pictograms have been. That must be the Brigadier, sir. I watched the helicopter skim across the sea towards us. Right now, the return of the Brigadier was the last thing I needed. I don't know what to say, Captain. I turned my back for a matter of a few hours, and not only does one man die in decidedly mysterious circumstances and without a single witness, but now you're telling me you've lost the doctor, I implored him. Brigadier, I appreciate things don't look good. Don't look good? He didn't stop for air. At the same time as chewing my head off, he demanded the perimeters be relaxed and all resources redirected towards finding the doctor. But the doctor can look after himself. Brigadier, things are happening here, and we're not adequately investigating the most obvious developments. With the imminent arrival of members of the British government, the last thing we should do is to relax our guard over Ikiria. Particularly while she's continuing to hand out these rings. And that's when I lost him. He accused me of being delusional. I don't know why it hurt, but it felt as if he was sticking a knife into me. Then he twisted it. He said that being attached to unit might not be for me, that it might be best if I was RTU'd. I felt numb. RTU is an army term. It means returned to unit. In this case, unit meant the regiment from which I originally came. Some might call it returning home, but the United Nations Intelligence Task Force was my home, the only home I'd ever had. To be RTU'd was, for me, to be banished. The Brigadier made arrangements for my immediate exit from the task force. Privates Hodge and Wilkins escorted me to the helicopter. Hodge reached out to open the door of the Westland Scout. He wore gloves. Then it occurred to me the Brigadier had also been wearing gloves. I hadn't noticed at the time because it seemed so normal. He often wore them. Was it simply a coincidence? I never know. Wilkins had climbed into the back of the helicopter. I was sitting in front of him beside the pilot where he could keep an eye on me. The pilot gripped the collective lever. He pulled upon it gently and the helicopter slowly lifted from the ground. I was powerless to do anything. I had no authority and no way of getting an audience with anyone who did. The only hope left was the doctor, wherever he was. But as the helicopter gained altitude, even this faint hope evaporated. To the north, spread across another field, the impression of another face. Deep lines ran diagonally from the generous nose. An impish, tight-lipped smile, slightly hooded eyes, lined but even depicted in a field of crops so, so bright. A thick mane of wavy hair that rippled gently as the downdraft from the helicopter stirred the crops below. It was an unmistakable face. The face of the Doctor.
The helicopter flew higher and higher into the air, and the doctor's face took shape in the field below. A portrait in the crops, staring back at me, fixing my gaze. Did this mean the doctor was dead? Just like Campbell? It had to be Ikiria. These rings must be controlling everybody, even making the brigadier ignore my requests. If she had control of the brigadier, and if she'd killed the doctor, then there was nothing stopping her. Once the Home Office had made contact with Ikiria, her influence would quickly spread until she had control of... what? The country? The world? I looked down at the face of the Doctor. Even though they were only sculpted in wheat, I could tell his eyes were burning into me, willing me to act. He might not approve of what I was about to do, but he would be the first to acknowledge that something had to be done, and I was the only person left to do it. I let the pilot reach flying altitude and waited as he turned the aircraft north and headed out to sea. The peninsula quickly slid from view beneath us. We flew over Brekul, Sark was to the east, and I waited until we were past both before I made my move. Fast as lightning, I jabbed the pilot in the ribs. It took all his effort to maintain control of the helicopter while recovering from the blow. I turned in my seat to see Wilkins reaching for his revolver. I waited until he was raising the weapon, and just as he was pointing it at me, I grabbed hold of his arm and pulled him forwards. As he fell between the two front seats, I twisted the gun from his grasp and used it to strike him hard on the back of the head. I felt his body slump and shoved him back into his seat. Then I turned my attention to the pilot, lifted the gun, placed the barrel against his temple, and pulled back the hammer. I want you to lose altitude, and when we're low enough, turn us round and fly back to the island. We're going to land to the north, as discreetly as we can. Is that clear? Pilot nodded. Good. He did well. I don't think I could have flown one of those things with a gun pointed at my head. Getting back to the Oliver's farm hadn't been easy. I had to tie up the pilot and Wilkins, disable the Westland, cross the island on foot, undetected, and find a way onto the peninsula without being seen. The only route was an access road 300 feet long, with a 300-foot drop on either side. The cliffs weren't a sheer drop, but they were craggy and overgrown, certainly not suitable for climbing along, particularly as I had no equipment. So I waited until nightfall, then picked my way carefully along the road. Thankfully, the roadblock was gone. I assumed all part of the brigadier's plan to search for the doctor. It was me against three platoon, unless I could find help. And I needed help. There was only one person left I could trust, and hoped I could trust. And hope was all I had as I headed for the farmhouse. I hid myself in a broom cupboard and waited. I didn't have to wait long. Mercer! <coughs> For crying out loud, Mercer, are you trying to get me caught? You scared the life out of me. What are you doing here? I told her what I'd done, but more importantly, I told her why I'd done it. But you've got no evidence, sir. 
Ikiria's done nothing to prove she's anything but a genuinely peaceful visitor. Mercer, you know what's going on here. You know Ikiria's controlling the minds of the men, of the Brigadier, him of all people. He never acts so willfully, with such disregard for process and protocol. And then there's the Doctor. What about the Doctor? I think the Doctor's been attacked. Maybe even dead. But you said... I know what I said. But that was before I saw his face in a field. Just like Campbell's. Crikey. We've got to do something. Mercer rummaged in the top pocket of her olive green field jacket. I've got something for you. Might help. What is it? Mercer showed me a ring. What the hell are you doing with that, Mercer? Get rid of it! I thought it'd help, sir! Are you paying any attention to what's going on around here? Sir? She's got to you, hasn't she? Sir? Not you, too. Oh, you're being paranoid. Just put the ring on, you'll see. It's all nonsense. She's here to help us, to save us. Save us from what? From ourselves! I started backing towards the door. Where are you going? I've got to put a stop to this. There's nothing to stop! I'm sorry, Mercer. I'm sorry she's got to you. I'll do what I can. And I ran from the farmhouse. Stop! Come back! Intruder in the compound! Intruder in the compound! I was on my own, and I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. But whatever it was, I was more determined than ever that it needed doing. I found a dark corner to hide in and squeezed myself between the side of an outbuilding and a large agricultural tank. I tried to control my breathing. I needed to be silent as well as invisible. I also needed a plan. Soldiers were everywhere. Mercer had well and truly turned. But I didn't have any time to dwell on it. I had to think, think! I squeezed my eyes shut, listened to the men organising themselves. I had no time. They'd find me any second. And it was in that moment, hiding in the dark with my eyes closed, that I smelled it. I opened my eyes. The tank I was squeezed up against was a fuel tank. The smell was diesel. And that meant there was only one logical thing for me to do. I ran, fast. Burning shrapnel rained down around me as I sprinted out of the yard and into the field. I was running for my life. It was hard going. Mud was sticking to my boots and the thick crops were slowing me down. Eventually I cleared the crops and ran across a short distance of rough ground, only to find myself standing at the top of a very high cliff. I turned to see my colleagues, members of 3 Platoon, appearing from the crops. One by one, they trained their rifles on me. I backed away from them as far as I could my heels slipping on wet soil at the cliff edge. Lower your weapons! The brigadier jumped from the Land Rover and walked towards me. The brig, the dependable, trustworthy brigadier. My friend. He was silhouetted by the rover's headlights, so I couldn't see his face. I couldn't read his expression, but I could see him raise his revolver and point it at me. The shots rang out and I stumbled back, teetering on the edge. I could hear waves pounding on the rocks below. I reached out to the brigadier. He was impassive. His gun was still raised. 
But in that moment, I knew he hadn't missed me accidentally. No trained soldier would miss a shot at that close range. I saw his trigger finger start to pull against the trigger. I saw the hammer start to pull back. I took a deep breath. I had to trust him. I had to trust the brigadier, and I had to trust the doctor. It was all I had left. Trust. When the brigadier fired, the bullet once again whistled past me. But I acted as if I'd taken the shot, and I threw myself over the cliff edge. I blinked a few times. The world was woolly. It, it took a moment for me to get my bearings, to see clearly. Then I recognized the face staring down at me. Doctor, come on, up you get. Oh, it was quite a tumble, I grant you that. But you're alive, that's the main thing. I knew you weren't dead, Doctor. I knew it. But I was sure the Brigadier was under a curious spell. No time for that now. We've got to get you to safety. And with that, he escorted me down a narrow path that wound its way along the cliff face. He took me to a cave near the bottom of the cliff, and I collapsed on the floor beside a small fire. Equipment was littered about, some of it with power, humming and pulsing purposefully, some discarded. All of it certainly too advanced to have been native to Sark. I asked the doctor where it had come from. The brigadier was busy on his return to the mainland, he said, telling me how the brigadier had arranged for the equipment to be brought to the doctor by sea. The purpose of which has been to make a thorough scientific study of the ring which Ikiria had given to the brigadier. He went on to explain how the brigadier passed it on to the doctor as soon as it had been given to him, and how, at the doctor's request, the brigadier then pretended to be under Ikiria's control. He had been wearing gloves to hide the fact he wasn't wearing the ring. In London, the brigadier had briefed the Home Office on the doctor's intentions, ordering that nobody approach the island under any circumstances. There's no delegation arriving from the Home Office? Of course not, he snapped. The very idea. The doctor had quickly realised the rings were being used to control people's minds through psychic projection. But he needed time to work out how Ikiria was doing it, and to come up with a way for us to fight back. His plan was to fake his own death so her attention would be focused elsewhere while he worked. To achieve this, he intentionally provoked her into a psychic battle, which, for the purposes of maintaining the illusion of his defeat, he very nearly lost. Hence your face appeared in the fields, a gruesome byproduct of her cruel mind, a symbolic projection of her victim. He then went on to outline his plan. In every Ethereum vessel, there is a psionic converter, it's the device through which Ethereans amplify their psychic power, broadcasting the signal to all the receiving devices in the area. The rings, precisely. He explained that psionic converters are powered by etheric crystals. The blue crystal I'd seen at the tip of the pyramid in Ikiria's ship. Etheric crystals are unique in that they're tuned to the psychic channel of the Ethereans, and therefore the perfect conduit for the control of others if focused correctly through the use of a psionic converter. All we had to do 
was replace the etheric crystal with another crystal, one that would reverse the polarity of Ethereum psychic energy. Where exactly are we going to get a crystal that'll do that? The doctor's eyes twinkled. Follow me, he said, and scurried off deeper into the cave. As I followed the doctor, I could hear a noise. It was subtle, low in frequency, almost as if the rocks themselves were vibrating, but very slowly. Towards the back of the cave was a red glow, and as we clambered over some rocks, I could see that the glow came from a small cabinet. The cabinet was like an oven, with a glass door on the front. The doctor gestured for me to look through the glass. Suspended in the air inside the cabinet was a red crystal. It was flawless in its construction. The light it gave out was spellbinding. And somehow I knew it was all we needed to defeat Ikiria. The doctor turned to me. Captain, he said, holding up his sonic screwdriver and offering it to me. Have you ever used one of these? The doctor and I clambered to the top of the cliff. The sun hadn't yet risen, but it was announcing its arrival, and the horizon to the east was beginning to glow. We stood shoulder to shoulder on the rough ground at the top of the cliff, and looked into the field before us. Ikiria's craft was visible in the distance, but now it seemed to be surrounded by men. They were stationary as though on guard. The doctor placed a hand on my shoulder, and we headed out towards the field. We crept carefully through the crops until we were close enough to get a better look at what was going on. The soldiers weren't on guard, but stood like statues, arranged around a curious ship in a perfect circle. As the sun peaked above the horizon, it sent a shaft of light across the island that reflected off the men, as if they were made of steel. It's as I suspected, Captain. It isn't just control that Akiria is interested in, as she said herself. And as the manifestation of the rings has proved, she's also here to manipulate matter. The men had been transformed. Their skin was no longer organic, but a hard metallic shell shining in the sunlight. Where once they had limbs, they now had what appeared to be flat blades, like wings or rotors. It was beyond anything I could have imagined seeing, and the sight of it sickened me. The doctor must have sensed my disgust and he focused on what needed to be done. Stay here, Captain, he said. If all goes according to plan, we'll have this dealt with in a jiffy. And with that, he was on his feet and striding casually towards Ikiria's ship. I hid amongst the crops and once again watched and waited. The doctor made it out of the crops and into the area of the pictogram Ikiria had flattened prior to her arrival. As he strode towards the ship, a sudden and blinding flash of light appeared before him stopping him in his tracks. When the light had gone, Ikiria remained in its place. Doctor. Ikiria, said the doctor. Returned from the dead. I should be surprised, but for some reason I am not. I have that effect on people. What do you think of my fleet? Magnificent, is it not? Grotesque is the word I'd use. That's not a nice way to talk of another's children. Actually, I haven't come here to chat. Then what have you come for, Doctor? 
to ask you to leave Earth now, to leave its people be. Pretty please? If it would make you go, then yes, please. But I have too much invested already, Doctor. Sadly, I must decline your kind invitation. Then I have no choice but to defeat you. You? Defeat me? You and whose army, Doctor? Because I already have yours. The Doctor braced himself, stepping back onto one foot and leaning forwards, his hands held out in front of him, as if he were attempting to push against an invisible wall. Ikeria began to shine from within, colors surging and spiraling through her. The strong gusts of wind blew around them both in swirling tornadoes. The Doctor's cape billowed behind him, whipped up by the growing power of the psychic energy Ikeria was channeling. You dare to challenge me again? I killed you once, Doctor. I can kill you again! And with that, Ikiria unleashed a barrage of psychic energy. It flowed towards the Doctor like a tsunami. And when it hit, I thought it would knock him into the next island. The onslaught must have been overwhelming. But he held firm. This was my chance. I leapt to my feet and ran towards Ikiria's ship. This had been the plan all along. For the Doctor to engage Ikiria in battle, to distract her, enabling me access to her ship. I didn't have long. The Doctor couldn't hold her back indefinitely. She was strong. Much stronger than he. All he was doing was buying me some time. It was up to me to act quickly and save his life. Save all our lives. The etheric crystal was glowing brightly in the tip of the psionic converter. I knelt down to where the point of the pyramid almost touched the floor and pulled a sonic screwdriver from my pocket. Squinting against the bright light, I focused it on the clasp that held the etheric crystal in place. And, as the doctor had instructed, I activated the screwdriver. It took a moment for the psionic converter to react. Then the clasp began to twist and unfold, unlocking the crystal. When the light had dimmed inside the etheric crystal, I removed it from the device. I was in the final process of replacing it with the red crystal the Doctor had grown in his cave when I heard a voice behind me. Mike? It was the last person I expected to see. Mercer, what are you doing here? What are you doing, Mike? I'm helping the Doctor. We're defeating Ikiria. Please don't do it, Mike. Ikiria is here to help us. She can make our lives better. We make our lives what they are, Mercer. And we can make our lives so much better, Mike. Together. What? Mercer reached out for me, held out her hand. Come with me, Mike. I'll take you home. Everything will be so much better once we get home. You'd like that, Mike, wouldn't you? A better home? A place that feels like home? For a moment, I was tempted to take her hand. To have a home at last. To go with Mercer and start a new life, away from all this madness. But I realized as I looked at her, it wasn't Mercer that was speaking to me. I turned from her and fired the sonic screwdriver at the mechanism on the psionic converter. It twisted and locked into place and a thrust of energy burst into the doctor's crystal. What are you doing, Mike? 
inside of Ikiria's ship filled with a strong crimson light, and the crystal went to work. Ah! I turned to see Ikiria battling and twisting, contorting into shapes the human body had not been designed to make. As the light in the crystal grew, we traversed the polarity of the psionic converter, sending everything Ikiria had created into free fall, including herself. There was nothing I could do for her. I ran. I ran for my life. As I ran from the ship, I could see the soldiers that surrounded it were converting back from their metalized mechanical forms. I stood, frozen by the hideous spectacle. I pitied them in their agony, but could do nothing to help them. I saw the doctor on his knees some distance away, and I heard him shout over the noise. Good work, Mike! I turned to see Kyria's ship dematerializing. It was folding in on itself as it rose into the air above me. A ball of red light grew around it, and a storm of energy was whipping across the field like a tornado. It was building to the point where it was beyond my endurance, when suddenly... It was gone. The ship, the light, everything vanished. I fell to the ground, exhausted, and lay there, staring up into the deep blue sky, listening to the waves crashing against the rocks. I want all casualties airlifted to safety as soon as humanly possible, barked the brigadier. The sky was beginning to darken above me. Night wasn't falling, but I was. It's okay, Mike. You're all right. Medics are on their way. Just hang on in there, oh boy. They're on their way. I came to about 30 minutes later. The army had been primed during the brigadier's visit to London, and medical assistance was already whisking the casualties off to hospital. Will the men be okay? They'll recover in time, said the doctor. Now let me see that etheric crystal. I handed it to him. And my thonic screwdriver, if you'll be so kind. I gave him the device. In all honesty, I was quite glad to be rid of it. He started to scan the crystal, turning the object slowly in his hand and passing the screwdriver over every facet. Reading Yates's future, Doctor, asked the brigadier. The doctor finished scanning the crystal and explained how we defeated Ikiria. This, he said, is the culprit. He went on to tell us the etheric crystal had a tiny flaw, certainly not enough to see with the naked eye, but nonetheless enough to alter the behavior of a normally peaceful ethereum. Psychic energy passing through a flawless etheric crystal would simply be amplified. But pass the same energy through a flawed crystal, and it would essentially corrupt the signal, effectively rendering Ikiria herself unstable. He thought it was likely the crystal had become damaged when Ikiria had been traveling between or spanning more than one dimension. Hardly her fault at all, he said. Just the sad consequence of an otherwise extraordinary life. The simple action of removing the etheric crystal from the psionic converter, he explained, 
had indeed saved his life. Ikiria was no longer able to channel amplified psychic energy. Rendered incapable of sustaining a physical presence outside her own vessel, she simply vanished. That's when she appeared inside the ship, disguised once again as Mercer to try to stop me. He told me Mercer was a psychic projection, an illusion, had been from the start. She'd never existed, but had been deployed to help lure us to the rendezvous. The character had been pieced together from fragments of my own memory, people I'd served with over the years, to create someone familiar to me, someone I'd trust and follow. He went on to congratulate me on my bravery and for trusting him. When all else was against you, you believed in us, Captain. And for that, I thank you. Then he said something most unexpected. He told me I had a strong mind. I think I blushed. I'd never felt strong of mind. The doctor's right, said the brigadier, adding that he was most impressed with my resourcefulness. He apologized for not being able to let me in on the doctor's plan, and for some of the things he'd said to me when pretending to be under Ikiria's control. But he said they both knew they could trust me to do what was needed to be done. That felt good. That felt like the brigadier I knew, the one I trusted more than life itself, the one that made me feel as if I belonged. He slapped me on the back. Come on, Yates, he said. Let's go home. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, The Time Museum. Please, we have to hurry. We've run out of time. They've come for us. Let me get my bearings, ma'am. I've only just woken up. In my bedroom, which is through that door. The Time Museum, Temporal Travelers, Vortex voyagers, courageous chrononauts. Gathered here are heroes who have wiped the dust of ages from their feet. Barbara. Barbara was a maths teacher. Susan. That was it. Susan. Good, good. I'm so pleased. It's an accurate recreation, faithful to your memories. Now, stay close to me. Just a minute. One last question. Can you get me home? My name's Richard Dinnick, and I'm the writer of The Rings of Akiria. My name's Felicity Duncan, and I'm playing Corporal Jean Mercer, Mrs. Oliver, and Akiria. I'm Richard Franklin. I play Captain Mike Yates and a whole army of soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and my name's Ken Bentley, and I directed The Rings of Ikiria. Richard, can I come to you first? Um, I just wanted to ask you how you return to a role like Mike Yates that's been it's been with you for quite a while now and and you you it hasn't been uh, a role you've recently played because I think it's been a couple of years since the last companion chronicle with Mike Yates in it what's your question (laughs) (laughs) how how do you return to a role such as Mike Yates I never left it (laughs) <laughs> uh, actually, no, that's perfectly true. Uh, Mike Yates has stayed with me. I mean, I think like any human being, he perhaps will mature. I don't know. But um, I've sort of, I think it perhaps is a characteristic of me, sort of stunted growth, really. I'm, uh, I feel I have never left the character of Captain Mike Yates. He's very much alive and well. There seem to be quite a lot of... Uh that with the unit family that that the characters were very much intertwined with the actors portraying them i think that's very true and i think you know in any long running series both by design and uh, instinctively uh, writers will tend to pick up things of the actors that they're working with all the time and they write things which are closer to the actor and I think it works both ways. Uh, you know, does art follow life or life follow art? And I think uh, the actor will uh, be- become closer to his own character or her own character. Mm. It's probably the case when you've created the role as well, isn't it? That it's it's, it's part of your DNA, isn't it? Very much so, yes, yes. It does depend what the character is. Yes. I mean, you know, Mike Yates is sort of uh, is brave, intelligent, handsome amusing, popular. You know, it's very close to my own character. I was just going to say, why did they they cast him? (laughs) And I was just wondering, Ken, what the casting process is. You get get a script. Do you you automatically get something in your head or...? For the other roles? Yes. Um, Yeah... That's a tricky one, really. I mean, as soon as... I I think we work with so many actors at Big Finish that always in my head is a sort of, if you like, a, a an ensemble cast. And whenever I'm reading a play, the first thing I'm thinking is, okay, what, what's what's needed? Um, what sort of voice do we need? Um, if it's uh, in the case of, of this story, it, it needed an actress that could play uh, two and some degree three roles. So I'm already thinking, who do I know that can do that number of characters? Um, and play that 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 range, um, and so there's this, there's this list in my head as I'm reading the play is is sort of getting whittled down all the time, and then you end up with a short list, and then you start to think, well, who would I like to get back in to do that? And in this case, we'd worked with Felicity recently, and she was um, perfect for the role, so it made absolute sense. And Felicity, when you when you read the script, what went through your head as to as to how you were going to approach the, the kind of dual roles of, of Mercer and Ikiria? Well, I, I've, I was wrapped by the script. Um, I think, obviously, they're very different characters, even though um, there are similarities at times. But um, I think they are very... <laughs> I think you can say that they are the same because people will be listening to this at the end of the Oh, right, OK, OK, oh, sorry. OK, well... It's OK, spoilers, spoilers are, are OK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, but, but but you know, obviously to play a Kyria is a very sort of um, 
it, it, one feels rather ethereal as as one decides <laughs> on the voice and so forth. Um, and uh, I had a bit of help there, but it was really, really a great part to play. And um, for me, a, a nice contrast with Mercer. Do you have obviously you've got to make two different characters and two different um, uh, parts? How do you, is there a, an acting technique where you would you know do a different inflection or do you, do you think about that? Do you stand in front of a mirror or <laughs> as a non-actor, it's it's fascinating to me to kind of get under the skin of of what you what you how you prepare. Ah, well, I think I think when you're looking at these scripts, you sort of do read aloud and see you get the feeling of how the scene will play and how it will play best with what voice. And I did try a number of voices, particularly for Mercer, but um, I kind of knew Akira immediately somehow. <laughs> Came very naturally, slightly frighteningly. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, you know, you just play about with it, really. And how much, Ken, do you play into that? Do you let the actors pretty much find what's comfortable for them or do you make suggestions? Well, uh, initially I'll always um, give the actor their, their freedom first of all because that's the way I work. I always prefer um, actors to come in with ideas and things they want to try and then um, depending on on, on how they approach it uh, some walk in and say look I've got a couple of ideas just you know give me a go and then tell me what you think others will walk through the door and say can we sit and have a chat about it for five minutes and then other times I might have a very clear idea it's rare when I've got a clear idea to be honest with you right but, but every now and then there's a story and, and it, it it sort of it gives me an idea about something and no, normally it's it, I would I would never suggest anything to an actor um, unless it was something, an idea I had that was sort of outside of the world and responsibility of the actor. So it might be that there's something, an idea I've got in post-production that um, means I have to ask their permission for them to try something for me so right, that I can make right. the story um, uh, work. Yes. And, and with re regards to these sorts of stories, it's it, it's normally practical things like um, uh, uh, once last year I did three stories back to back and for for whatever reason, all the, the creatures in those three stories were quite similar. Right. And so what I knew I needed to do was make sure each was each was suitably different. So I, I knew in that instance I had to go in and say, right, what, I know what we can't do is this and this because that's what those other two so, stories so are going to be doing. So one has to be a Yorkshire accent and one has to be... <laughs> For example. But it's very rare that I would come in and say, look, this is what I want it to sound like. I, I always give the actor the opportunity to, um, to have fun, first of all. And Richard, you have a very difficult job because not only have you got to play uh, the iconic role of Mike Yates, but you've also got to play John Pertwee playing the Doctor, uh, or channel John Pertwee playing the Doctor, and, and also um, the Brigadier as well, and, and as you say, an army of soldiers. Yes. Um, can I just uh, pick you up before I take that? Just uh, something that Ken said. He's an absolutely charming director, and as he says, he likes the actors to be free and, and, and have fun and, and read through it. Absolutely right. Then we get to the second take and he says, right, you're going to do it like this. And he puts you in a straitjacket. 
No, no, actually, I, I, I really do jest. It's been a, a, a totally, our recording of, of, of this story has been just total fun. And, uh, you know, he knows exactly what he wants, whatever he says, and uh, gives extremely helpful and good guidance. Uh, you know, the, the relationship between actor and director is, is obviously vital and between the, the, the two actors. And uh, Felicity, who's actually two um, booths away from me, I felt the relationship between us was very strong. So did I, darling. Yeah. So did I. <laughs> she wanted to take you home, after all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now I've forgotten again what your question was. <laughs> uh, yes. No, no, I remember what it is. It's uh, how does one approach doing different characters? Well, actually, of course, uh, th this is difficult because... Um, uh, the, the, the brigadier and and the, and uh, the doctor John Pertwee and Nicholas Courtney are terribly well and Benton are terribly well known, and people know what they sound like. And but uh, uh, the intention was not to give um, a perfect um, sort of facsimile of of um, of, of their voices, uh, but just to give some hint. Of the of the type of character, it's, I mean, not, I think, it's not an impersonation. It's not an impersonation. That's the word I was looking for. Yes, it's not an actual impersonation. Um, I think if you are trying to get close to doing another character, what you're looking for is the pitch uh, and the pace uh, and the music, because we all speak slightly differently, mm. very differently. Yeah, yeah, mm. and that's and with particularly with. Um, with with John Pertwee, um, there you were saying uh, earlier in the recording that that he had he did have a lisp, but he played that he played through that as it were. Oh yes, I mean it's uh, uh, jo uh, John's uh, lisp and and uh, way of speaking uh, from childhood actually has been his lifelong success, mm. as he he told me. Uh, which I think is is very interesting. I'm quite sure that he it was no secret. It's not sort of uh, spilling any beans because he he said it quite openly when he was at school. Uh, the boys sort of as boys are, they tend to sort of laugh if you've got a lisp or a this that or the other. And in order to stop being laughed at, he actually made them laugh more by using these little speech quirks that he had to create a whole range of characters, which was his start as king of radio. Yes, with all those, with all the uh, all, all those wonderful and all those little little postmen and funny postmen, all those all those different voices he had. So he made the boys laugh at him in the way he wanted them to laugh at him, and he went on doing it all his life. And um, to sum up, I just wondered if if uh, uh, the three of you could pick a two or three words or even one just to sum up your your feeling for the for the work here today. Magical. <laughs> I would always say fun. I have so much fun working with Big Finish. I yeah. really do. Um, you, you know, the, 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 there's everybody puts so much effort uh, into uh, into making sure they get the work right. Um, you said one, two, or three words, and I'm saying I about yeah. twenty. Yeah, you've gone over. Um, I'm trying to explain <laughs> why I just said fun, but okay, fun. <laughs> and Richard. Well, I'm not quite certain what sort of answer to give. I was going to say the word I'd use is unrepeatable, uh, but I won't say that. Uh, the word I think I will say is... Uh, I, can only do it, I don't know if I can do it in one word. It's a wonderful feeling to be able to be the character again. 
thank you very much, Richard Franklin, Ken Bentley, Felicity Duncan. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.